Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 254 with Paula Pant. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. I met Paula originally on her podcast, Afford Anything, had a whole lot of fun. Wanted to bring her back here because she had some real insight with the way she was asking questions and as well as providing answers here about personal finance stuff as well as career stuff. So you'll learn one, how to afford anything, but not everything. Two, why self-care is career care. And three, how to successfully prep for newer and bigger obstacles. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items that we've referenced here, I'd recommend you check out awesomeatyourjob.com slash F254, where we have that. Now here's Paula's story. Paula Pant is the founder of the award-winning website, affordanything.com, and a writer and speaker specializing in money, business, and real estate investing. She's been featured more than four dozen times in major publications, including Forbes, Fortune, Money.com, AOL Daily Finance, Marketplace Money, Kuppinger, Bloomberg Business, Inc. Magazine, Business Insider, and many more. Here is Paula. Paula, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you for having me. This is already great. Oh, shucks. Well, (laughs) Well, it was a delight to be on your show. So thank you again for that opportunity. And so I'm excited to cover some of the good stuff here. And first things first. I understand you had a childhood dream to work at Taco Bell. What is the origin of this? And did you ever come to realize that dream? <laughs> that was uh, absolutely my childhood dream. In fact, you know, when you're a little kid and they give you that booklet in school where each year you can write your height and your weight, and, and then you can write what you want to be when you grow up. It was my fourth grade year. I filled out that I wanted to work part time at Taco Bell. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, And the reason I I clearly remember my reasoning, and it was that I figured I would be able to eat Taco Bell every single day. And Uh I could not think of a better (laughs) career benefit than that. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, my wife still loves Taco Bell and I enjoy it from time to time. So tell me, are you still a fan of Taco Bell? And did you end up ever working there? I absolutely love Taco Bell. Yes. But I never ended up working there. When I was 15, I applied for a job and they told me that I had to be at least 16. So then I went over to the McDonald's because they would hire at 15. And then I ended up just kind of getting stuck there. So I never did fulfill that childhood dream. Interesting. Well, now they're kicking themselves. They wish they would have had the chance, but it's over now. (laughs) Right. I guess never say never. Okay. (laughs) It could happen. Well, then tell us now your current gig, Afford Anything at affordanything.com. What's this all about? All right. So how this all started was uh, I've only ever worked in traditional employment. I've only ever had an employer for a total of three years. And uh, I quit that job in 2008. And I had about $25,000 saved up at that point. And so I started traveling and I spent about a year in Southeast Asia, just kind of backpacked around. And when I was doing that, a lot of my friends kept saying, oh, I would love to do something like that, but I can't afford it. That was the number one thing I heard. But this was coming from people who lived in nicer apartments than I did. They drove nicer cars than I did. They had their hair cut and highlighted at salons. They were spending in some pretty serious ways. And yet they believed, they honestly believed that they didn't have enough money to travel. And so I started the blog Afford Anything initially in order to impart to people the idea that you can afford anything, but you can't afford 
everything. And every decision that you make is a trade-off against something else. And that's not just true of your money. It's true of your time, your focus, your energy, your career moves. It's true of everything that you do. Absolutely, it is. And I remember when I first learned about the concept of opportunity costs in an economics class, I was like, whoa, that's heavy. <laughs> it was it was like so... It hit me so hard and it was so profound. And like when the teacher kept talking, I was like, can we just have a moment here? This is This changes everything. Yeah. Okay. Understood. So you had a change of perspective relative to your friends in terms of, of how you were choosing to prioritize and spend your dollars on travel type adventures. Very cool. So then is that the story of the website right here, right now? What's the mission? What's the ethos? Sure. Yeah. That's the origin story of the website. But then what happened was as uh, I started the site almost seven years ago. And over that period of time, I was dedicated to never going back to the workforce. So initially that manifested as myself becoming an entrepreneur, becoming self-employed. In the beginning, I used to write a lot about that. And then I realized that if I started saving money and building investments and using those investments to buy assets that would produce an income stream, then that income stream would be initially supplemental income. And later, it grew to be big enough that it could cover my basic cost of living. Nothing fancy. It's about $40,000 a year. But forty grand a year is enough for me to cover my basic cost of living so that I'm never going to worry about not being able to buy groceries, not being able to keep the lights on. And as a result, it A, provides some security, some psychological security, and B, as a result of that security, it allows me to take more risks as an entrepreneur, to push myself harder in the areas in which I am passionate. So uh, that's been a lot of what I have written about on the blog. I've written a lot about financial independence on Afford Anything. That wasn't the original purpose of it. It's just I've changed over the course of seven years and the blog has reflected that. Well, one thing I found so interesting about you and money is that you have had a number of years of life in which you saved or invested over half, more than 50%, of your income. And I think that's that's quite intriguing because many folks struggle to save 10%. And I often share with folks that when it comes to career choices, you want to optimize for happiness instead of money. And sometimes they say, well, I, I can't take less money. That's going backwards. It's wrong. It's bad. How would I even afford it? But you have managed to save over half of income, which is striking. Tell us, how was that done? Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, to give a little bit of backstory. I graduated from college in in 2005. And that one and only job that I've ever had, that was 2005 to 2008. When I started working there in 05, my starting salary was $21,000. And when I quit that job in 2008, my ending salary at that point was $31,000. Now, those were not the years in which I was saving 50% of my income, to be clear. But that was what I earned during that three-year period. So the highest amount of money that I'd ever earned is 31000 at the top end as a salary. And what that meant is that the combination of being a college student, which I think many of us have experienced, those lean, scrappy days, and then being a full-time salaried worker who earned in the 20s, I just got used to living very, very cheaply to a degree that I think would make a lot of people uncomfortable. For example, my husband and I had roommates until we were age 35 and 31, respectively. 
Okay. Now, when you say roommates, you mean that they are in the same unit in another bedroom? Correct. Yes. I mean, we shared a kitchen. We shared, in many cases, a bathroom. Yes. I mean, people who, when you enter the door at night, they are sitting on your living room couch watching television. In a way, I think that's awesome because one, it is non-traditional. It's different. And two, my wife and I actually discussed this option. <laughs> yeah? Because I, I had an amazing apartment. We called it the Strat. And I lived there for 10 years with awesome roommates who came and went. And then we were figuring, oh, we're getting married. We're finding a place. What should we do? And the option was on the table. Should she move into the Strat <laughs> and have a, a number of other dude roommates? And so, you know, we've weighed the pros and cons and ultimately decided not to. But I thought that that was pretty cool of her to be even willing to consider it as opposed to saying, uh, yeah, no, no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so he and I, Will and I did that. We started living together when I was 24, 25 when we started living together. And then I was 31 when we stopped living with the roommates. Then he was 35 at the time when we stopped living with the roommates. So that was the vast majority of our relationship so far has been with roommates. And, and that's just one of many examples. I mean, I could keep going. I love it. Please do. Well, my car, for a year and a half, I drove a car that I bought for $400. The seller wanted 450 for it, but I talked him down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after that, I traded up to a car that was valued at $1,500. So just example after example after example like that. My husband is a vegetarian which means that our grocery costs are lower. Now, I'm not suggesting that people become vegetarian purely for the sake of saving money, but I'm just highlighting all of these as examples of ways in which people spend that they don't even realize that they're spending. Somebody might say, oh, but my, my massive grocery bill, this is a need. It's groceries. What's more basic than that? Yes, but you can trim there. Housing, it's a need. What's more basic than that? Yes, but there are ways to do it. And so I guess the, the short answer to your question, Pete, in terms of how did we save 50% of our income, really it's twofold. Number one is that we did increase our income. You know, I couldn't have saved 50% back when I was making 21000 a year. So increasing our earnings, increasing our income was definitely a part of that. But also living with roommates, driving a $1,500 car, eating vegetarian food from Costco at home, not going to a hair salon, not getting manicures and pedicures and facials and all the other stuff that people do, that was all a huge part of it as well. Well, so now in now living that frugal life, did you find joy, happiness, an experience of goodness? Or was it sort of austerity and drudgery amidst these sacrifices? Well, it depends on what year you're talking about. I've had many phases of my life and there have definitely been phases in which I've gone overboard and I've been frugal to the point where it was unhealthy. But I've also had phases, and I think I'm in one right now, in which I have a very good balance and my living brings me a lot of joy. And because we have such strong savings and because we've had a habit of saving and investing for many years, I never have to go back into W-2 employment unless I absolutely want to, but I never have to. Like I'll never depend on that for a paycheck, barring some incredible circumstance. I've been able to have the career that I want, do the work that I want, run my business in the way that I want for many, many years now. And it's you know, because I'm not worried about keeping the lights on. That's awesome. 
Cool. No, agreed. There's a huge value to that. And that's cool. And so then, not that this is the quit your job, escape the rat race podcast. There are plenty of those. <laughs> Here we like our jobs for the most part or are looking to make a switch. But what I find really intriguing is that when it comes to the leaps that you've made when it comes to your adventures and and career moves and entrepreneurship, as you say that much of it had to do with the inner psychological struggles, whether it's self-doubt or the fear or imposter syndrome. Can you share a little bit about what those sounded like in your head, how you overcame them, and if there are any key transferable tips and tools for others? Sure, absolutely. So first of all, when I did quit my job, I was extremely worried about whether or not I was committing career suicide because I worried that having a gap on my resume would make me less appealing to future employers. At the time, I didn't realize that I would not be employed do you know what I mean? By the time mm-hmm. that I quit, I anticipated quitting my job for a couple of years and then going back into the traditional workforce. And so I really worried about the gap on my resume. And I, I think that women in particular who might want to quit their job in order to become full-time caretakers for a couple of years, I think many of women also have that same concern. Am I going to look less serious to a future employer? How can I explain this gap? And honestly, the fear of that probably kept me at that job for at least six, eight months longer than I otherwise would have been. I just, I hated the idea that everything that I've worked for might be for naught. And I'm not sure if there, at the time, if there was a way that I got over it. Eventually, I just got so frustrated with the the status quo. I was so unhappy uh, going into that job day after day that I just, I had to quit. There was just no other choice. I don't think I really ever got over that fear. I think that fear stayed with me for many years. In fact, probably part of the reason that I saved so much and invested so much is because I wanted to create, as I said, I wanted to create alternate streams of income that didn't depend on an employer because there, I always had that fear of what if I need a job and nobody wants me? That's interesting. And so then I thought we were going to talk about brilliant psychological tools, but instead it's intriguing how you're suggesting that it was more about an adaptation in terms of because that was the fear, you built your life and your options and your and your game plan in some ways around it or accommodating for that fear. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Okay. Intriguing. Now, I imagine though that uh, you had some additional inner psychological challenges with the the self doubt, the fear, the imposter syndrome stuff during the course of building your business and putting out content and charging for things and choosing to buy a property and those things. And yet, you've managed to come out on top. You're doing well in those areas. So, did you come up with any kind of a patterns or, or means by which you overcame those difficulties? Well, uh, a few things. Now, number one. It's funny because from the outside looking in, you might say that I've come out on top, I've been successful, but internally, I can perceive the gap between my current self and what I imagine myself if I were operating at my full potential to be. All success is relative. So to the outside world, to some people, I may seem successful, but to myself, I really don't feel that way. So I suppose the answer to your question is, Again, it kind of goes back to the imposter syndrome never goes away. I think people's perceptions of themselves often lag reality because you see yourself the way you were a year ago rather than where you are now. That's insightful. Please elaborate. 
I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it, my perception of myself just continue. Yeah, within my business, I'm always advancing, but my self image was formed from many, many previous years, and that self image is hard to shed. So there's always a lag time between the two. Yeah, that's intriguing, and, and that really resonates for me with regard to. I've had the the thought on numerous occasions, whether it comes to sort of a big opportunity or whatever pops up, it's just like, I'm just a kid. It's like, I yeah. don't really know what I'm doing. Okay. And it is sort of like fill in the blank, whether it's like, like iTunes rankings and who knows how those work exactly. But it's just like, I don't know if I really am like a top five 10 careers podcast in terms of the the sheer outstandingness of this program <laughs> and then being in media you know, like like new york times or forbes it's like well i don't i'm not really like a, a super brilliant dude i mean i i definitely have figured out some things and have some strengths and can be valuable to folks but i really don't have all the answers i i, I got some great questions though and so that's intriguing how uh, but I'm right with you in that I think a year from now, I will feel less of that, which I don't know if you call it imposter syndrome, but that notion that, hey, third party, I think you may be overvaluing <laughs> you know, what I can really bring to the table. Yeah, <laughs> you may be overestimating me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so I suppose, Pete, the, the short answer to your question is that that never goes away. It's never really overcome. The lag is always there and you just keep moving forward anyway, in spite of it. And you also recognize, as you and I are talking about right now, that everybody else around you, who you perceive to be successful, also feel the same way. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And so then in the moments where you do it anyway, it sounds like maybe there's no there's no magic formula or trick or framework so much as as you just take the step. But I'm wondering, you know, I, we've both purchased real estate before. And so maybe can you share with me, were there some times in which you were sort of intimidated by the enormity of what you were you know, committing to or, or taking on? And how did that end up unfolding? Sure, absolutely. So uh, as background for everyone listening, I have seven rental units. That's where the, the net 40,000 annually comes from, from my investments. And right before I bought the first property, which was a triplex, I remember my best friend said to me on the phone, how could you possibly compete against all of those real estate agents and contractors and all those industry professionals? Like, who are you? I remember I was 27 at the time. So 27 with zero real estate experience. I never even owned my own home. Heck, I never even lived without roommates. I still <laughs> wouldn't for a number of years. And so she said, well, how could you possibly compete with everybody out there who is actually a professional in this field? And that ripped me apart that really stopped me in my tracks i'm sorry what was your original question well, so yeah i mean <laughs> it yeah. was it was how did how did i overcome that how did i Certainly. So, that? so there well that's great you took us right to that moment there it's like okay doubt here we are <laughs> you're about to do something big and someone you trust uh, raises a a valid you know genuine concern so yeah walk us through the story there again not to sound like a broken record but i never really got over it. I just decided I was going to do it. And I proceeded full speed ahead. I suppose I didn't have huge ambitions of buying a hundred properties. I just wanted to buy that first one and make that first one work. 
And even though I had doubts about how I would be able to stack up against all of these other industry professionals, I believed that I could, at a minimum, buy one property and make that cash flow positive and make that a very solid investment and a very solid passive income stream. And once I did it with the first property, then it was easier to buy the second. And once I did it with the second, it was easier to buy the third. So I suppose that is the other way that I did it was I just took it one step at a time. Yeah, certainly that's good. And it was based upon uh, the facts. It seems like I'm sure you had your spreadsheets, et cetera. And so you were looking at that and it's like, well, I don't know what the, the, why the real estate professionals didn't care to, to snap this one up and outbid me, but here we are. The inputs and the outputs are what they are. And, and this looks totally workable. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I also, you know, I gave myself room for error. I gave myself wiggle room. Uh, again, that goes back to only buying one property at a time. If I had tried to buy 10 in that first year or even five in that first year, I would have collapsed under the weight of it all. But by going one property at a time, I experienced my learning curve and then moved forward. So I think that that also helped as well. I, I recognized that there would be a learning curve and I gave myself enough time to have that. I did the same thing when I started a business. You know, there are some people who I hear they're new entrepreneurs, they're enthusiastic, and they have these huge ambitions of triple digit growth and scale and this and that and the other. And uh, my approach is very different. My approach is, whoa, okay, put on the brakes, slow down. You don't want to grow too fast. Grow slow so that it's sustainable. Certainly. Right. Because you don't want to collapse under <laughs> having way too much that you can handle and then disappointing all of your respective customers. And so that's wise. So a bit at a time and leaving some room for the learning and that unfolds there. And so I want to also cover a little bit when it comes to just uh, wise decisions in terms of the allocation of your your money, your time and career decisions and, and running your life. So that is sort of a, a theme that shows up on, on your site frequently. And so I'd love it if you could share with us, what are a few of your, your key principles that you find you come back to again and again when it comes to wise decision making? So first of all, constantly recognizing trade-offs. Because every suggestion, not every, but many suggestions sound good in a vacuum. Do you want to go to this amazing conference in Seattle? Or do you want to accept this freelance project from a client? All of those sound really amazing in a vacuum. But recognizing that each one comes with trade-offs and recognizing that saying yes to one thing implicitly means saying no to others. There's the opportunity cost again. It's heavy. You got to sit with it more. Exactly. And you have to remind yourself of it on a daily basis because there are always going to be more good options than there is time and energy to pursue those all. And sometimes you have to say no to the good in order to make room for the great. So I um, keep that in mind whenever I'm making decisions about money, time, energy, anything like that. You know, I, I try to keep my priorities in order. So that's one thing. That's one kind of aspect of wise decision making. Another aspect is focusing on only one thing at a time. So this, this relates back to what I just talked about in terms of I'm just going to buy this one house. I'm going to make sure that I've got it really solid. And then only I'm going to do the next thing. But that doesn't just play out in real estate investing. It plays out in every facet of life. So if I'm working on a new project within my company, I'm not going to start another major project. I might have some like a little minor things that I begin, but there's only going to be one huge, like large project that the company is working on at any given point. And it's only when that is done that 
you know, we'll put that aside or put that on maintenance mode and then move forward. So I suppose the short way of saying that is that I'm only aiming for growth in a very narrow space at a time. Everything else goes on maintenance, but the growth is extremely focused. Okay, understood. Cool. So now I'd also like to hear when it comes to professionals and your uh, wisdom and tips for them, what are some things that come up again and again in in terms of, of the advice that you're offering for professionals that want to flourish all the more in their work lives? Well, a couple of things. So number one, I'm a big believer in self-care as a form of career care. So getting eight hours of sleep and exercising, things like that, that a lot of people dismiss. In fact, people oftentimes try to martyr themselves on their desk. They'll brag about how little sleep they got. I, I think that's a big mistake. If you get eight hours of sleep and you get cardiovascular exercise and you have laughter in your life and you're happy, that can really help a professional flourish at work, regardless of what type of work you're doing. During the workday, unitasking, the opposite of multitasking, is, a, I think, pivotal because there's a tension residue every time that we task switch. And so turning off your notifications, not task switching, and planning out your day such that you have large chunks of time in which you can go into deep work mode, that I think is crucial for being productive. Your success at work is based on your results rather than your hours. And so by unitasking, you can have strong, focused results in fewer hours. Totally. Okay. Well, now I'd love to get a a quick perspective from you before we shift gears as well about sort of financial stuff. So you gave some cool perspective on how really it's possible to live at much, much less expenditure on a daily, monthly basis. Any other pro tips that you find time and time again are helpful for folks to get a quick upgrade to their financial game? Sure, absolutely. So number one, if your goal is to start saving more of your income, but you feel as though you can't, which is the most common objection that I hear, oh, I'd love to save more, but I can't. Try this. I call this the 1% challenge. This month, whatever it is that you're currently saving, save one additional percent. So if you make $5,000 a month, 1% is $50. This month, save one additional percent more. Next month, do the same thing again. So if you make $5,000, this month you save 50 additional. Next month, you save another 50 on top of that. So next month, you're saving 2% more than you currently are. If you continue this over the course of a year, then, I mean, you can do the math. At the end of the year, you're saving 12% more than you are right now, but you've done it in these 1% increments. And so the pinch doesn't feel as severe. And, and I imagine that's probably pretty fun. It, it, well, at least that's how I imagine it because it's sort of like strategically, my strategy brain goes into place like, okay, where can I find in this example, the 50 bucks a month that is not going to hurt as much. And so then you'll start saying, well, you know what? How often do I really use these subscription services? Maybe instead of Spotify, I'll just download the 30 songs I listen to constantly (laughs) and then we'll cancel Spotify, for instance, et cetera, et cetera. Because it's sort of like you get to take your shot bit by bit. And could you share in your own experience or, or those of those you've influenced, some of the, the top places people end up uh, targeting first? Sure. So this, this sounds incredibly boring, but it's very effective. Go through all of your insurances and make sure that you have uh, 
reasonable levels of insurance, insurance in terms of auto insurance, uh, homeowners insurance, life insurance policies. People have so many different forms of insurance and they often don't even know what they have. And often it's something that you sign up for once and then you never look at again. If you, again, it just batch some time, set aside four hours on a Saturday to go through, and you don't have to do this often, just do it once a year, go through all of that. And oftentimes you'll find better value, better coverage relative to the premiums you're paying that could save you hundreds of dollars in a year. That's great. So that's one thing. A lot of the readers who have gone through the 1% challenge, most people don't literally save exactly 1.000% every month. What I've typically seen is that those savings end up coming in chunks. So in one month, you'll cancel Spotify and HBO Go, and that'll save you 25 bucks a month. And then the next month, you're not quite sure, you know, so, so maybe the month one, you didn't quite hit that 1% target. But then in month two, you realize that you and your spouse can actually downgrade to only one car. And so you sell the other car and boom, now you're at 12% already. So that's what I've seen happen with most of my readers is uh, once you get people thinking about how to do it, that usually sets the wheels in motion. Um, it's usually the initial momentum that gets people to big advances. But money is not in many, in most cases, so linear that, uh, that it literally ends up being $50 a month. I think what's important is having the impetus that gets you going and to have uh, a framework that shows you how saving an additional 10%, 12%, 20% is more reasonable and more uh, attainable than you might think. And I think that's really cool with the example of of the car and wheels in motion. I'm, I'm thinking about Get Around right now, which is a, a website that enables you to share cars like Airbnb. And so I've been carless most of my adult life for over a decade now. We're considering buying a car because we have a baby coming. It's like, it might be tricky to get places. <laughs> with a baby in the absence of car. And so we're like, oh man, I don't want that new expense in my life. But we're, we're looking at opportunities like uh, Get Around, which enables people to rent it out at times, which is pretty cool. And so there's all this sort of innovative means by which you can get that savings, not only with cost reduction, but sort of income offsetting when it comes to picking up roommates or Airbnb being out of room or, or with Get Around. So I love the paradigm that you're shifting here in terms of really opening it up in terms of what it's possible to live on and creative means by which expenses can be reduced or offloaded. It's so good. Any, any other quick tips? Actually, I'm glad that you brought up Get Around because the flip side to the 1% challenge, we've been discussing savings so far, but what I really emphasize with my audience is that in personal finance circles, there tends to be a little bit of a rift between people who encourage earning more versus people who encourage saving more. So they're, they're kind of two different camps that tend to argue with each other a lot. And uh, what I always tell the Afford Anything audience is ignore the debate over earn more versus save more and instead focus on what those two ideas have in common, which is growing the gap between your income and your spending. So You've got your income, you've got your spending. Your job is to grow the gap between the two. And there are only two ways to do that, earn more or spend less. And since Pete, since you and I have been talking about the spending less side of the equation for the past several minutes, let's talk about the the flip side of the 1% challenge, which is challenging yourself to earn more, challenging yourself to earn an extra 1% or 2% this month. And so, yeah, something like renting out your assets, renting out your car, 
or your guest room through Get Around or Airbnb. That's a perfect example of how uh, people can nudge their income up a little bit as well. Yeah, that's good. Well, no, I love it. Well, and, and then there's sort of freelancing, like whatever skill you have, you know, if you can make a website or give a massage. <laughs> well, generally speaking, when you look at the gig economy, the opportunities that have low barriers to entry tend to have the lowest pay. So those are good stepping stones. Signing up to become an Uber driver, for example, there are low bar- relatively low barriers to entry with regard to getting on the ground. So if you need a quick hit of cash, if you're in a dire situation, that's a great way to get some quick cash. But in terms of using your skill set to make the most of your time, that's not necessarily where many people would want to stay forever. It's just a stepping stone. So if you are looking into the gig economy, look past the low barrier to entry opportunities and you know, take the time to develop a skill set or an asset that will pay you more over the long run. So for example, if you have a particular expertise, you could become an expert witness and have a, a, a side gig or a side business giving expert testimony in court cases. Uh, you could become a coach or a tutor or a teacher at, at a high-end level. There are many things, depending on your skill set, there are many ways that you could use your skill set in a way that gives you a high hourly rate and or gives you a recurring passive stream of income. So I would encourage people as you're going down the gig economy rabbit hole to start thinking about opportunities that are scalable. Well, it's, it's so funny. I'm, I'm like, oh, ex- being an expert witness, that's fascinating. I forgot that those exist. But I, I'm just imagining myself now on the stand. It's like, I've interviewed hundreds of people about what it takes to be awesome at your job. And your honor, I can attest that this person was or was not awesome at their job. <laughs> in this wrongful termination. Well, that'd be interesting. You make some friends and enemies that way, huh? <laughs> Probably. But Pete, you know, you're also an expert at podcasting. You have a podcast that is in what the top five or top 10 career podcasts in iTunes. You could certainly be an expert witness to talk about the podcasting industry. Are those people called into trials and on on what basis? If there is a need, you will find it. There are a few websites that link attorneys with expert witnesses. So all you would need to do is sign up, report what your areas of expertise are. And then when that need arises, you'll be contacted by an attorney. And with, with a field like podcasting, which is so new and in which the laws are unclear, that seems to be ripe with court cases that, uh, in which people are trying to determine copyright law. People are trying to determine what's normal within the industry. People are trying to determine if content that you hear in a podcast could be considered advice and should be held to a higher s- standard or purely considered entertainment. You know, there, there's so many different use cases for why new and emerging technologies would be debated that uh, those experts are needed. That's awesome. Well, I love the way you're, you're opening up our eyes. And can you, can you drop a couple URLs right here and we'll link to them in the show notes? Let's see. Let me, let me pull this up because I don't want to give you a wrong one. Wyzant is one of them. W-Y-Z-A-N-T. Oh, isn't that for tutors? Oh, yes, that is the tutor one. What's the expert witness one? I didn't mean to turn this into a conversation about expert witnesses. That was. Oh, no, it's cool. Well, I think that just gets the wheels turning a little bit. It's like, oh, I could be an expert witness. Let's look at the website. Wait a minute. I know about this. It's a little iterative inspiration. 
Oh, there's a new phrase I made. There we go. The Expert Institute. That's what, the expertinstitute.com. Yeah, and Wizen, which I mentioned, is another way. A lot of people contact me and they say, look, I signed up for Upwork, but everything there is a race to the bottom in terms of fees. So if that if that is your experience, then get off of Upwork because you don't want to be competing with people who are competing on cost alone. You want to distinguish yourself based on the value that you offer. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, thanks. Paula, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Sure, absolutely. The other tip that I would offer to professionals or to anybody who wants to to flourish and to make smarter decisions is recognize some of your cognitive biases. So Pete, what you had just mentioned, the I, I don't know the name of this particular cognitive bias, but your mind goes to what you have most recently encountered. So Pete, if if what you have most recently encountered is podcasting in one very specific form, you might not recognize all of the other use cases for what podcasting expertise could offer. So that recency bias could limit your thinking. The sunk cost fallacy often limits people's thinking. The sunk cost fallacy is what comes up when a person decides, well, I've already put so much money into this, or I've already put so much time into this, I may as well keep going, which is irrational because just because you have committed X time and money into a project doesn't mean that you should also commit future resources into that same project. But it is that cognitive bias, it's that fallacy that gets a lot of people hung up. Loss aversion is another cognitive bias where people are more upset about real actualized losses rather than missed opportunities. You know, you might be upset about a $3 bank fee, but not about the extra $3,000 that you could have put into your business at the beginning of the year that would have caused it to grow um, in a uh, bigger or better or maybe more strategic way than it ended up doing. Like My point is people get upset about real losses, whereas people don't often get upset about missed opportunities. And that is an example of loss aversion. And loss aversion is an example of a cognitive bias. And recognizing your cognitive biases and being very aware of those is a strategy for making smarter decisions and flourishing at work. Perfect. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something inspiring to you? Sure. One of my favorites is the quote by Jim Rohn, that you are the average of the five people you spend most time around. Mm, Jim Rohn. It's music to listen to him. And how about a favorite study? In the book, The Millionaire Next Door, the authors uh, studied millionaires in the United States, and what they found among their many findings was that the overwhelming majority of U.S. millionaires are self-made, by which they mean their first generation. And something like at least half of them have never accepted even a single dollar as inheritance. Fascinating. And so that very much disrupts some of the stereotypes that people have about millionaires. That, oh, they, they must have had it handed to them. It must have been passed down. What the research indicates is that that is quantifiably not the case. Excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. It's an older one, but there are a couple of books that I reread every year, and that is one of them. Cool. And how about a favorite tool? Uh, there's a tool. It's a Chrome extension, a Google Chrome extension called Flux. And what it does is if you're working late at night, it removes some of the blue wavelength lights from the lights that your uh, screen is emitting, which means that you can work late at night without having the wavelengths of light from your laptop interfere with your melatonin production and therefore interfere with your sleep cycles. I'm a flux lover myself. 
Very good. Ah, nice. And how about a favorite habit? When I wake up in the morning, the first thing that I do is I chug a pint glass of water. And that is a, it's a fantastic habit. And I realize it sounds very silly, but being hydrated, like sleep and, and exercise, is one of those things that actually makes you more productive and more focused during the workday. Certainly. Well, yeah, I've gone deep into the studies on hydration before. I guess it's somewhat controversial. Like, oh, just drink when you're thirsty and you'll be fine. But I think in practice, there are so many little cues and signals and conveniences or inconveniences that cause us to actually take the effort to, to drink water versus not that, oh, just drink when you're thirsty is insufficient and often inadequate advice to get you to an optimal hydration and energized place. And, and that's what I believe right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, in fact, I, I believe that if you are thirsty, it's far too late. If you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. And unfortunately, a lot of people mistake thirst for hunger or for some other cue. So I think that contributes even more to dehydration. I'm with you. If you're peeing yellow, you're dehydrated. <laughs> Quote it. <laughs> you heard it here from Paula about your urine. Yeah, it's true. Piss here. <laughs> okay. And, and is there a particular nugget or piece that you share that seems to really resonate with your audience? They, they retweet it. They take notes. They tell all their friends. It's You can afford anything, but not everything. I, I've kind of become known for that idea in some ways. And, uh, and I've noticed when I share that on, on social media, uh, on Twitter, that's the idea that just tends to get uh, retweeted, commented on, shared often. Another one that I really like is uh, the secret to career success is doing the thing that made you weird as a kid. Ooh, yeah, that is a nice one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that resonates for me too. <laughs> I, I was reading self-improvement books as a kid and that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> and Paula, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? You can listen to my podcast, which is the Afford Anything podcast. And I have an interview with you, Pete. So I would direct people there first and foremost. So uh, you can you can hear the tables get turned. The podcast is called Afford Anything. And the blog is affordanything.com. And you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? All right. My challenge is for for everyone listening is to piss clear. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Awesome. And if if there's challenge number two, it's listen to episode 97 of the Afford Anything podcast because that is the episode in which you talk about how to be awesome at your job. Oh. Thank you. Much appreciated. Oh, and Paula, thanks for, for taking this time. This was a lot of fun and eye-opening, and, and I have a feeling I've got some costs that are going to uh, disappear from my life after this. So thank you, and keep rocking out over there. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate what Paula had to say with regard to your self-concept and confidence lagging behind your experience, and then it sort of grows after the fact, which is pretty cool encouragement. If there's anything that you want to push yourself into a little bit, but you're kind of anxious and and don't yet have the courage, well, hey, that will come later. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or links to items that we've referenced, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F254. And I hope you'll push subscribe if you haven't already to hear from our next guest. It is Russ Kalusis, a good buddy of mine for years. We are chatting about some of what he's figured out over at Tradecraft, an organization that trains and equips and mobilizes professionals to do a cool sort of startup Silicon Valley type role. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. 
Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 